we're going to look tonight at how we got the Bible. And I got to tell you, how many of you need the notes? Does everybody have the notes you want? The notes, you got them all? Everybody got them? Nod. Give me, don't give me the no nods. This way or this way? Anybody need the notes? Okay. Can somebody tell Jeff that we need some notes in here? And you're going to owe us. You're going to have to owe us. Because Jeff will get on me because he pays for the paper. So that's it. It's, and if you don't have the money, we'll give them to you. I mean, you guys gave $20,000. What am I going to say? All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's stand up. And we're going to read here just a little bit. And uh, then you can be seated. I'm, I'm sharing this, this with you. I'm leading up to the book of Genesis. And um, the reason that I'm going through how we got the book is because the book is under attack. I don't know if you've noticed, but every Easter... Time and Newsweek magazine feel it's their call and duty to uh, inform us of all the reasons why the resurrection isn't real, why the Bible's not real, why it's all myth and fable. Our God and faith, and if you, if you need the notes, raise your hand because here comes the man with the notes. If you need the notes. So Frank, just move quickly like an angel. You don't look like an angel, but I think you can move like an angel. All right. And uh, there we go, and David Hutto has some. Now, your faith is under attack in our country. And the Bible says we are not to be moved. Now, I want you to say a little something with me. Uh, David, this lady right here in the middle, we need a few more, Frank. Raise your hand high, dear. There we go. They're going to get you some. Um, I want you to say this with me. Information brings inspiration. See, Jesus said you will know the truth, and once you know it, it sets you free. Okay? Now, today when I went to, um, um, I was running a few errands, and I was driving down the street, and I saw two Jehovah's Witnesses doing what they do, going house to house, knocking on doors, and here's what I know. If the people in those homes knew the Word of God, they would go out of business, it's when you don't know the Word, you become very confused very easily. Now, my calling is to teach and to preach, and I want to ground you in the Word of God. I want you to know that the Bible in your hand is God's Word. It is the Word of God. All right, so let's read. Uh, let's pray together. And we, you can sit down. Lord, we just thank you right now for establishing us in the truth that is in Jesus Christ, for establishing our hearts in the faith, Lord, for, for just confirming with knowledge the fact that this Bible, your book, is the Word of God, the God-breathed Scriptures. Lord, establish us in that so that we will say with David, I shall not be moved. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And um, there we go. I think everybody has the notes now. Did you get all their names, Frank? I'm sorry. All right. Um, I, t I shared with you last time that I was raised uh, in a family that uh, on my dad's side was very intellectually inclined. My dad was uh, very widely read, uh, very intelligent guy. He was a, a member of uh, the, the genius group Mensa. His IQ was out there. 
and he had a lot of head knowledge. And when I got saved and I started blabbing about my faith, um, I didn't get just any old, well, good for you or anything like that. I got peppered with questions that were from books, that were thought out, that were based in science or so-called science, scientific uh, suppositions and all of this. And early on in my faith, I had to dig for answers. But my dad wasn't the only one. Then I went to college. And I'll never forget in college, in, in science classes in particular, and even history classes, uh, it was amazing how uh, my faith was not accepted. I was persecuted for my faith. I was mocked and ridiculed for my faith. And I had to come up with answers. And they were always uh, not just any old answer, but I had to dig. I had to study. I had to find out what a skeptical, educated world was saying about my faith. And I'm going to tell you, folks, that I never had a question the Lord did not answer. Can I tell you about our God, that our God does not mind scrutiny? Our God is not threatened by asking questions. Our God doesn't mind us going to him and saying, Father, this doesn't make sense to me. Can you help me understand this? He's more than willing to do it. And so what I am taking you through was a part of my growth process. I reached a place where I just knew, not just in my heart, but I knew intellectually. I knew through reason and common sense and knowledge that this was the Word of God. And, you know, you can say, well, I just believe that it is, but a skeptic is going to look at you and say, well, why do you believe that? How can you prove that it is? Why do you, how can you say that? And I want you to be able to have an answer. So last time we established the Bible's claims for itself. And here's what the Bible says about itself, that it originated with God. That's what the Bible says about itself. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much Scripture? All. All Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We start Genesis next week. And we're leading up to it now. Because when we get into the book of Genesis, that is the most attacked, maligned, disbelieved book in the whole Bible. And so I have a reason for going through this before we get up to Genesis. So originated with God. Then we saw that it, it is a book that is completely verbally inspired, breathed out by God, not just the ideas in it, but word for word. In the original language, there's not a wasted word, and according to Jesus, not a wasted or a non-God-breathed punctuation mark. It's breathed out by God, and God never says er or uh. He doesn't waste a word. Amen? We saw that the Bible meets man's greatest needs, and it does. There's not an issue you confront that the Bible won't answer. It's relevant, and it's effective. It is quick, and it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow. It discerns the secret motivations and intents of the heart. The Word of God is a sword, it is a hammer, it is a fire. There is nothing like this Bible when it's quoted. I learned years and years ago as a preacher, the more I quote the Bible, the more results I see. 
The more I quote the Word of God, the more I see it touch and change lives. I'm not called to get up here and give you my opinion about stuff. I'm called to get up here and break open the Word of life and share the Word with you, and that's what changes lives. That's why some people won't read it, because it reads their mail. Now, it's timeless. The Word of the Lord endures forever. It never has to bend or bow or break or or amend itself to any generation or any culture. It is true, relevant, across the board. It never needs uh, to adapt itself to you and me. We are called to adapt ourselves to it. We're not called to tear it apart. It's called to tear us apart and then put us back together. Now, we also looked at how the official canon of Scripture was developed. Now, let's just do a little bit of summarizing here because I want you to know what this means. The word canon means a reed or measuring rod. And that's what the Bible is. It's a measuring rod. Uh, somebody hand me a Bible that I can have up here with me. Um, I don't know what happened. But mine didn't end up in here. Do you need your Bible, George? Are you going to go into... Okay, good deal. I got a Bible. Everybody hold your Bible up. I really sinned. I'm teaching on the Bible and mine's not up here. But here it is. All right. What is this? It's a measuring rod. It's a measuring rod. It shows us what God expects of you and me. It shows us how we ought to live. It is profitable for reproof, doctrine, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now, the word canon came to mean the norm or rule, and eventually came to mean a catalog or list. I think everybody's got the notes now. I think we're good. Everybody got them? Well, we'll have to do it afterwards. We'll do it afterwards. I apologize. Okay. It came to mean the norm or rule and eventually came to mean a catalog or a list. That's the word canon. It signifies a collection of writings which are God-breathed, inspired, and therefore they are authoritative and binding on men. See, you're going to answer for what you did with this word. It's binding on men. That is, let me tell you how I can tell if somebody has made Jesus Lord if they will submit to the authority of this book. If they want to uh, submit to the authority of this book, something in them is haywire. It is not spiritually submitted. It, they have not made Jesus Lord. Now let me give you another little truth tonight, and that is that I don't see how Jesus can be your Savior and not your Lord. The two go hand in hand. And I've noticed if I see a man or I see a woman who clearly know what the Bible says and they won't submit to it, they're headed towards trouble. They are going to stray away from God. And um, um, they are going to reap some consequences that are not pleasant. If you say you're submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you will honor what this Word clearly tells you to do, even though it's difficult and it's not always easy. I think the hardest thing Jesus ever told us was to forgive one another. There's people I just haven't wanted to forgive. I've wanted to whoop them. I didn't want to forgive them. And I struggled to forgive them through the years. But you know what? I knew what the Word said. And the Word grabbed hold of me. And I knew that I had to submit to the Word of God and do it. I knew I had to. Or I can't walk with God. So I did. I forgave. Now I'm very free to pray for them all the time. Some of them I've completely forgotten about. And that's a good sign. Because if you can't forget them, you're probably still bitter. But watch this. 
if somebody tells me Jesus is Lord, they will, they realize that the Word of God is binding on men. It calls us to submit to its authority because it's not the words of men. It's the Word of God. And that's really, really important, friend. So if you're a Christian tonight, Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. Honor the Word of God and the Word of God will honor you. Obey the Word of God and the Word of God will set you free. No matter how hard it is at the time. Now, the 66 books that are comprised, the one book, the Bible, Biblos, the one book, were chosen to be included in the canon. And this is the completed canon in your hand, the completed list. Here it is. They were included based on these things. Inspiration. It had to be decided they were inspired. Only those works that had been inspired by God were to be part of the canon. And so they had to be deemed inspired, not just beautiful in the way they were written, but inspired. Now, they had to have apostolic authority. Really important here. Every New Testament book has apostolic authority. Since they were written by apostles or close associates of the apostles or of Jesus. There's not a writer in this New Testament that was not an original apostle or that knew someone that was. So they had a check and balance. There's no way they came away with stuff that did not originate with the apostles. And I went over that list last week. If you missed it, you ought to go get it. Uh, be sure you do get it because you need to know this. All right? Now, let's talk about uh, one of the meetings they had. It was called the Synod of Hippo. When I hear that Synod of Hippo, first thing I look, I picture in my mind is a great big hippopotamus. But this is what this meeting was called. When what is known as the Synod of Hippo, which was a gathering of church leaders 393 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so four centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection, these church leaders met and declared the 27 books in your New Testament to be, uh, to be the final New Testament canon. When they did that, they were confirming what was universally already held to be true. It had already been uh, believed and accepted that the 27 books in your New Testament were the Word of God. But this synod of Hippo, this group of church leaders sealed it and said, officially, this is the New Testament canon. This is what makes up the New Testament. No other book, no other letter, no other writing is ever going to be put in to this New Testament. You have the 39 books of the old, the 27 books of the new. Those 66 make up one book, and there will never be another one added. They already held it to be true, though. All that they had done, now here's how they did it. Here's how they decided what would be the canon. They had reached back to the second generation of disciples. Now watch this carefully, because you've heard the phrase, early church fathers. I'm going to tell you what they were. They had reached back to the second generation of disciples, those that had known and been mentored by the original apostles, to see what they had considered to be genuine apostolic writings. They wanted testimony from men who had known the apostles, had first-hand accounts, had known them, talked with them, been discipled by them. Because isn't it interesting that 
Jesus Christ, the greatest disciple on the face of the earth, taught his apostles to mentor and disciple others. And they did. And here's who they were. This second generation of disciples are known as the early church fathers. What's an early church father? What does it mean? The early church fathers were men simply who had been disciples of the apostles. If they had been discipled by the apostles, they were early church fathers. They were the second generation of disciples. Very simple. For instance, here's one. Clement of Rome was appointed by Peter to his ministry. Now, that's an ordination. Amen? If Simon Peter lays his hands on you and says, you're called to the ministry, brother, get after it. You're called. Clement of Rome was appointed by Peter to his ministry. That's a church father. That's an early church father. Now, Irenaeus wrote these words that he had. I love this. Irenaeus said, I have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in my ears and their doctrine is in front of my eyes. Woo! And what do the apostles say? John, for instance, said, we held him, we touched him, we heard him, we walked with him. And now what is this guy saying about John and the, the apostles? I still hear their preaching echoing in my ears. Their doctrine is still in front of my eyes. In other words, when somebody is full of Jesus and they mentor you and disciple you, they are unforgettable people in your life. And every one of you that grows in grace should be mentoring somebody. You older ladies, and I don't mean that in a bad way, you sisters that have been going on in Christ a while, there ought to be somebody somewhere in your life, some woman, some girl, some young lady that you're mentoring. Let the older women teach the younger, the apostle said. You guys that have been walking in the faith for a long time, who's around you that you're mentoring, that you're teaching, that you're saying, you know, I'm not perfect, I don't know everything, but this much I have learned in walking with Jesus. You ought to be mentoring somebody. Because if we don't mentor people, somewhere down the road, the church dies. So who's coming up along behind you? Because every one of these people, they mentored. Irenaeus, uh, in, in his writings, in his writings, uh, and this is what the Synod of Hippo looked at. In Irenaeus' writings, he quoted from Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, Hebrews, and Titus. So he accepted that every one of those were the New Testament, were the inspired letters written by inspired men. Ignatius knew the apostles well. And in his writings, he quoted from 13 in the New Testament books. They just looked back at that and said, well, those 13, he, he knew those to be the words of God because he knew the apostles. Polycarp was martyred in, at 86 years of age. And he had been a disciple of John. He had been John's main disciple, Polycarp. That's an early church father. Clement of Alexandria quoted the New Testament. Look at this, 2,400 times in his writings covering every New Testament book but three of them. Well, when I'm sitting here trying to figure out what should be in the New Testament canon, I look back at these early church fathers and what they considered to be the inspired writings, and I go, okay, there you go. There's no mystery to it. They knew the apostles who wrote them. 
These are but a few examples when the Synod of Hippo convened in 393 A.D. It was easy for them to discover which books carried apostolic authority by what the early church fathers had deemed to be genuine. Very simple. Now, how can we know that it's accurate? Now, this is one of the things that bugged me early on. I'm long past it, but it bugged me early on because this is one of the things my dad hit me with. How do you know? He would say, now, when he went, when he passed from this earth, he was saved. I had the joy of leading my dad to Christ. But it took 25 years of just hanging tough and answering the questions the best I could. But watch this. This, this, this got to me because I used to say, well, how do I know it's accurate? Because if the Bible we currently possess claims inerrancy and inspiration, and it does, inerrancy meaning without error, how do we know that the original manuscripts were faithfully and accurately copied? Because I know people. And I know people are always wanting to insert their opinions. Is that the people you know? Is that you? Come on, sure. Now, how can we be sure that the copyists who labored over every single letter and point of punctuation, how do we know that with all those copyists down through the centuries, they did not err or place their own biases in the text rather than what was originally written? You know, how do, how do you know that? Because there were so many copyists. Here's my big consolation. Are you ready? First way you know, Jesus. Jesus was, is what it's all about for me. Jesus had complete confidence that the Old Testament was the faithfully copied and accurate word of God. Now I want you to say with me, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. When Jesus refers to the book of Genesis and quotes from it and talks about Adam and Eve and talks about uh, uh, the, the flood and talks about the fall of man, that tells me Jesus believed that Genesis was the word of God. And so if Jesus believes Genesis is the word of God, I can almost stop in my investigation right there. But we have even more. But let's look at how Jesus believed it. Look what he said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, that's Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch, or the prophets. The Old Testament is made up of the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, the law being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the prophets being all those, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the way down to Malachi. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, Jesus Christ, who saved your soul, said, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. Well, if he had questions about it, he's sure not going to tell us that he came to fulfill it. But he went even further. I tell you the truth, said Jesus, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished he said this old testament is so accurate so inspired so flawless that not one jot or tittle was a mistake that means jonah was gobbled up by a fish that means there was a great universal flood that means there wasn't Adam and Eve and they were approached by a serpent that led them into sin. 
If you can't accept Genesis, how do you accept anything else? Now watch this. So here I look at Jesus saying that and I say, okay, that settles it for me. Not the least stroke of a pen. Not the smallest punctuation mark is going to pass away until all of it's fulfilled. And he says, I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to do away with it, throw it away, get rid of the Ten Commandments. I came to fulfill it. All right. Now, we have more evidence. Not just Jesus, but the apostles had complete confidence that the Old Testament was the faithfully transmitted Word of God. Now, I want you to read this next part with me. And that their own writings were inspired and part of the God-breathed Word. Is that true? Did they think their own writings were on a par with Moses' writings? Did they really think that? By his own testimony. Let's look at it. The Apostle Paul received a unique revelation from God. Look what he said. Quote, here comes Paul. The gospel which was preached by me, read this everybody, is not after man. He said it didn't come from men. Remember I told you this is a meteorite you hold in your hand? This Bible a meteorite is a rock from another world. It's not an earthly rock. The Bible is not an earthly book. It's from another world. <laughs> Y'all are looking at me like, wow. Oh, yeah, you're holding the red-hot, God-breathed Word in your hands. Very important. The gospel which was preached by me, says Paul, didn't come from men. For neither did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it from man. But it came through, read it with me everybody, revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation means that which has been revealed that you would have never discovered on your own. He said, I got what I got from revelation of the Holy Ghost. What I'm telling you did not come from the mind of men. The revelation given to Paul was a yardstick by which to gauge other so-called revelations. Listen to what he said in Galatians 1 verse 8, quote, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. Now I'm going to go say something against political correctness right now, which I love doing. I won't let Jehovah's Witnesses into my house. So, Pastor Jeff, you ought to get him in there and sit him down because you can, you can talk him out of it. I may go out on the porch. But if they come with a gospel contrary to what I received, I said, let them be accursed. And another place in the Bible says, don't let them in the house. Well, that's not love. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because love is sometimes tough and, and firm. And I don't think you ought to be mean to people, but it angers me when somebody comes to me with a gospel, uh, so-called gospel that is contrary to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't like it at all. I, I don't like it. Uh, now, his message, Paul's message, bore the stamp of divine authority. Look what he said. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you, read it with me, everyone, are the Lord's commandment. Notice, the things I'm writing that you read in your Bible, in the New Testament, the things he wrote were the Lord's commandment. They came from the Lord. He is claiming, everybody, divine inspiration 
on a par with Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And that's exactly what it is. In Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, boy, did he get strong here. He made his authority crystal clear. Look what he said. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us, what everyone, the word of God's message, how did they accept it? You accepted it not as the word of men. Uh Uh-uh. This is not the word of men, but for what it really is. What is it really? The word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. The Word is working mightily in you. The Word is working mightily in you. When you're reading the Bible, the Word of God, this meteorite from another world, this red-hot, God-breathed Word, it stokes your faith and it begins to work in you. So, look what either Paul had gone completely loony, or he was right. He said, it's the Word of God. And that's the way you accepted it. And he said, that's what it really is. What I'm writing to you is as much the Word of God as thou shalt not steal. Now, then at the close of 1 Thessalonians, look what he says. Thus, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. So if you rejected the New Testament writings, you're not rejecting men. You're rejecting God. That's why I say to you, if you say you're a believer and you know what the Word of God teaches about something and you completely cast it aside and don't submit to it, something in you is uncrucified and God's going to deal with that. And I'm talking to you as one who many times in my life, the Word has messed with me instead of blessed me. You know... It either blesses you or messes with you. And there have been times I struggled with what the Word of God said. But in the final analysis, you've got to go, you know what? That's God's Word, so I'm going to do what it says. And when you do, you'll see the Word working mightily in you. This is good stuff tonight. This is good stuff. You all, you need to know this. Now, The disciple Simon Peter confirmed the fact that Paul's writings were of divine authority. Look what Peter thought about Paul's writings. And regard, he says, quote, And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Now look what he says. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable will distort, as they do also the rest of what? The Scriptures. Now, there's Simon Peter calling Paul's writings the Scriptures to their own destruction. He says, if you distort and if you mess with and misapply and misrepresent the Word of God, you do it to your own destruction. So the New Testament writers claim divine authority for their writings on an equal par with the Old Testament Scriptures. So can you hold your Bible up again for a minute? Can you say with me, Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, every word of it. Give the Lord a hand of praise. That's good.
Now, let's go a little deeper here because this is what really helped me. If you made it through high school, you no doubt heard of the epic Greek poem, The Iliad. How many of you read The Iliad? Or tried to, anyway. How many of you remember that being an assignment in school, The Iliad? Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and, you know, all about the Trojan Wars and all of that. Now, let me show you something here. It was written by the poet Homer around the 8th century B.C., so 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 800 years, Homer wrote the Iliad. We have today around 643 surviving manuscripts of the Iliad. Now, understand with me, church, every one of them were copied. We don't have any of the originals. They go back eight centuries before the arrival of Jesus. So we don't have the originals. What do we have? Copies. And how many of them? 643. Now let's, let's think a minute together. If we were to ask any high school or college professor whether they believe the Iliad is an accurate representation of what Homer originally wrote, they would say what? Absolutely. It's never questioned. But there's only 643 copies from 800 years before Jesus even showed up. Now keep that in mind. And this in spite of the fact that the Iliad is centuries older than the New Testament. Maybe I went, and it's never questioned. Yes, it's never questioned. They never say, now here's what we assume Homer wrote, but we're not sure. No, it's never. Here's Homer's Iliad. They say this in spite of the fact that the Iliad is centuries older than the New Testament. And thus could have much more easily suffered what? Corruption at the hands of who? Copyists. Sure. Look how many times that had to be copied eight centuries before Christ. Now, moving forward a bit in history, we come to Julius Caesar's writings about the Gallic Wars, which historians today view as our record. They, it is our absolute record of that event and it was written about 50 years before Jesus showed up. All right? Julius Caesar's writings about the Gallic Wars. How many copies do we have? Nine to ten surviving copies. Yet, its accuracy is never questioned. If you took a class in college on the Gallic Wars, Julius Caesar's writings would be quoted like they were gospel fact. But there's only nine to ten surviving copies. And they are indeed what? Copies. We don't have the originals. Now, with this in mind, what about the New Testament that so often suffers attack, the accuracy of which is held in continual question, and its dependability thrown into endless doubt in academic circles? Academic circles poo-poo the New Testament, the Bible, all the time. Well, what about the New Testament? You ready? The number of our New Testament manuscripts is vast. There are at least 5,300 copies in all know this the new testament was, is without doubt the best attested book from the ancient world nothing even comes close to the attestation of your bible in your hand it is the most solid historical document in the possession of mankind the red hot I wish I had my Bible that lights up. It's back there. Can you grab that? It's on the shelf. 
No, it's under the shelf. I, I, I'm sorry. I had a moment. Somebody made me a Bible. Somebody made me a Bible. Those of you listening by radio, they made me a Bible that when you open it, it's got a light in it. And it shines in your face. And I said, that's the way I feel every time I open it. So those of you that haven't seen it, you got to see this. But let's move on. So do you see with me, eight to eight, nine to ten copies of Julius Caesar's writings, yet, oh yeah, we accept that. 600 and something copies of Homer's Iliad. But, oh yeah, we accept that. Oh yeah, absolutely. 5,300. And that's not all. We possess more than 24,000 pieces of the New Testament today. Now, why does this matter? Well, you say, well, what, so what, Pastor Jeff? I mean, I never had a problem with the Bible being the Bible. Get ready. You're going to need to know these things. Because our country, our world, our culture is attacking the Word of God. Why does this matter? Because with all these copies, there is abundant opportunity to discover whether or not they all agree. If I've got 5,300 copies, and I think, well, some of those copyists inserted their own opinions... Uh, uh, messed with the text, didn't do it right, and so we've got a conglomerate of all kinds of different ideas and concepts that were not in the original writings. When you've got 5,300 copies, you can compare. You can't find Oh, well, I'm going to let you close it, and I'm going to go back there and find it. Oh, the battery's dead. Well, this battery will never die. All right. Okay, so do you see that if there had been errors, mistakes, and twisting and skewing the original, with all those copies, you would see a bunch of different things. But no, they all agree. If mistakes were made by the copyists down through the ages, we, we would see it as we compare the existing manuscripts, one with another. Yet amazingly, they all agree. It's an amazing thing. Now let's make this simple. To doubt the reliability of the New Testament as far as its accuracy and faithfulness to the originals would be to throw away all ancient literature. There's not one piece of ancient literature you could hold on to if you say the Bible's not reliable. All of it has to go. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle from the Greeks, along with writings from other great, great ancient civilizations like Egypt, Babylon, China, and others. They would all have to go. Confucius, all of them. They would, Buddha, they would all have to go. Because nothing is attested to like the New Testament and like the Holy Bible. This is the greatest ancient manuscript in the possession of men. Right here. Now, when I started realizing these things, boy, did it help me to talk to people like my dad, college professors who I just, a few of them went mad right in front of me. Crazy. Right in front of me. Now let me end with an amazing discovery. I told you we were going to talk about amazing discovery. As we entered the 20th century, critics of the Bible became more vocal in their disbelief of Scripture. Um, higher criticism had come in from Germany, other parts of Europe, crossed the ocean, came over here like a, like a theological plague. And we began to tear the Bible apart and not accept it as the Word of God. And it would take another whole night to tell you what that did to the pulpits of America. Because we started out churning out preachers that didn't have a thus saith the Lord. They had a thus maybe saith the Lord. If I'm reading people right, they want to know what says the Lord. Now, 
They became more and more vocal in their disbelief. In spite of the overwhelming manuscript evidence, they still attacked the Bible. They said things like this. Mistakes had to have been made in the copying. We can't have anything close to the original manuscripts, knowing people. It can't be. At this time, the oldest manuscript of the Old Testament we had dated back to around 900 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. So the oldest Old Testament, how many centuries were between the Old and the New Testament? Four. 400 years went by between Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and Matthew. 400 years is called the silent years. God did not give one prophetic word for four centuries. So you had four centuries, then 900 years beyond that, that's the oldest Old Testament manuscript we had. So you had at least 1,300 years between the original and the oldest copy we had. So people were going, it can't be trusted, it's not valid, it's just, you can't, scholastically, this can't be true. Now, the critics said, see, it's claimed this is God's word, yet the best copy we have is a thousand years or more beyond the original writing. How can you be certain you've got the real Old Testament, the real word of God? But that soon ended. It ended in 1947 by a miracle, and I'm convinced in 1948, Israel became a nation again, and the prophetic hourglass was turned upside down. And I believe that's the generation where the final prophecies in the Bible are to be fulfilled. One year before Israel became a nation again, on the western shores of the Dead Sea, a young Bedouin boy named Juma was tending to his herd of goats. Now think about this. This is my God. Here's just a kid... He's looking after his herd of goats. He's in the middle of nowhere. And he was a part of a band of adventurers who were smuggling goats from Transjordan into Palestine. So they were smugglers to boot. And here they are. They're just, they're just herding these goats along. And being a good shepherd, Juma chased after one of his goats. Juma's Arab. He was an Arab. Juma chased after one of his goats that had strayed up a cliff and got lost. Hey, let me tell you something. Sometimes when something gets lost, God's got a plan behind it. That goat got lost. It strayed up a cliff, and it got lost. And when he found the goat, he noticed the opening of a cave in the middle of a cliff wall. Now, we put a picture up there. If you can see, look at the barrenness of this. Look at this. And there were thousands of caves just like this all along this area. This was a needle in a haystack. This was a needle in a haystack. Now, he, he, he sees this cave, and being a boy, he picked up some rocks, and he chunked them in. And when he threw the stone in the cave, he was intrigued when he heard the stone make a sharp crack, like it had shattered something. And so, being a boy, he got curious. He ran and got a friend. And they came back. So two Bedouin boys, Arab boys, began to explore the cave. They soon discovered a collection of several large clay jars and the fragments of several others. And here's what they started thinking. Is there silver in them? Is there gold in them? Are we rich? We can quit herding goats and smuggling goats now? And what they found inside disappointed them. It was a treasure, but not the hoard of silver and gold they had dreamed of, and they didn't know that it was a treasure. 
Instead, the jars contained thin scrolls that we talked about last week, wrapped in linen that had been coated with pitch and wax, and because they had been coated with pitch and wax, they lasted. Remarkably, the scrolls were still legible, but the boys couldn't uh, read the strange manuscripts because they weren't written in Arabic. As the story goes, the Bedouins sold a few samples of the scrolls. They began to sell these things just for a little bit of money. And they sold some of them to a merchant in Bethlehem for a, a mere 20 pounds. Amazing. They did not know what they had. Like some people that have their Bible on their shelf gathering dust. Oddly, the next several years saw the samples of the scrolls pass through many hands, yet there was little interest in them. Think about this. Because what they did not know <clears throat> was they had made the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Oh, and they're going, hey, hey, man, 20 pounds, you can have these scrolls. I don't have any use for them. But you know what they were? They were the Dead Sea Scrolls, worth millions upon millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. And they are a collection of about 900 scrolls, including many from several other caves in the same area. Notably among them are, watch this, seven scrolls of the only known biblical texts dated before 100 A.D. So suddenly, we've got scrolls that went from 900 years A.D. to to before one, it leaped 800 years. And guess what? On top of this, a complete copy of Isaiah was found. Wow! A complete copy of Isaiah, the prince of prophets. Well, all they had was one that was 900 years beyond Christ. Now they got one that's right around the time of the early church fathers. Why does this matter? Because the manuscripts we had from 900 A.D. that were under such attack for probable inaccuracy were identical to the copies found in the cave in 1947 that were almost a thousand years older. So every silly critic had his mouth glued shut. It was perfect copies. It was as if God were saying, see, and I believe that God did this. There's no way that little Bedouin boy with all those hundreds of caves in that area just happened to throw a rock into the one that had Isaiah. Uh-uh. <laughs> so here, here's what God was saying to the skeptical generation we live in. My word's accurate. It's been faithfully copied and passed down through the ages. Trust it. Trust it. You can trust it. And one year later, God seemed to shout again to this generation when the most important prophetic event in last day's prophecy took place, namely Israel, against all odds, became a nation again. And the single greatest Bible prophecy that had yet to be fulfilled took place in front of our eyes in 1948 against all odds. So in one year's time span, God shouted twice, my word is accurate, my word is true. 
Let's stand together, and we're going to read the summary, and then we're going to go home. Wasn't this good tonight? Did you all like this tonight? In summary, the Bible is God's divinely inspired word. Jesus accepted the Old Testament as being utterly accurate down to the last jot and tittle. The process by which the 66 books were chosen to be a part of the total canon of Scripture was carefully executed over years of close scrutiny and sound judgment. Again, Jesus affirmed and accepted the uh, completed Old Testament canon, and his disciples were used of God to pen the New Testament canon by their own testimony. God has been careful to confirm and affirm the soundness and accuracy of his word through the centuries. Hence, you and me, as believers, can rest assured that we possess God's holy word and can confidently build our lives around its teaching. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. That's good. Let's sing one worship song. Let's just thank the Lord in a moment of worship before we're dismissed.